Um, I actually have uh, an image I want to show you guys of a piece of art. Hang on now. There it is. Uh, has anybody seen this before? Three people? That's cool. That's good. Uh, does anybody know who, you guys know who did this? Michelangelo, the Ninja Turtle, right. Yes. So Michelangelo carved this. This piece is called the Atlas Stone. This is called the Atlas Stone. And if you look at it, it depicts the primordial man. It, it is showing the primordial man carving and freeing himself from the rock. This is my favorite of the four similar themed pieces. This one especially because hopefully you can see in Michelangelo's uh, his, his, his artistic creation, he has really made a lot of energy. There's like strong expression of energy in this piece of art, at least in my opinion. Now, there's been many interpretations of what this piece of art means, but most would say, as I would agree, this is the symbol of the Renaissance era. This is. It's a powerful image that is the making of the modern man. This is the making of the modern man. See, man will set himself free. Man will make himself victorious. Simply, man authors and defines all of life. See, it's as a great philosopher once said, it's my life and it's now or never. I ain't going to live forever. I just want to live while I'm alive. It's my life by the legendary Bon Jovi. I made sure I put my, my wife who does my slides, I made her make sure she put that up there. Love you, girl. So friends, the, this marble rock metaphor is what seems to be the most offensive with the Jesus of the Bible, with Christianity and the church. I say this because Jesus desires to be our, our sculptor. This is what's so offensive about Christianity. Christ says, no, 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 I want to be the sculptor. See, being discipled by Jesus is a lifetime of being sculpted. It's a lifetime of being sculpted. It's this idea of being an internal learner a pupil, an apprentice, or becoming like your, your master. Now, what I'm saying right now is nothing new to really anybody in this room. We're all very familiar with this concept. We're all familiar with this concept. This is, not, this is something we, we all intrinsically do. And for all of us here, not just Christians, for all of us here, it's a very familiar understanding that we learn from influencers, right? We learn from influencers, that we apprentice certain figures around us. So I can look around this room and I see that there are disciples of David Fincher here. There are disciples of Frank Ocean here. There are disciples of one another in this room. I mean, I even think about, isn't that, I mean, isn't that how the whole idea of celebrity marketing works, right? The only reason we drink smart water in here is because Jennifer Aniston drinks smart water. It's not because smart water tastes better than other water. Jennifer, that's the only reason. I think of my children, holy smokes, when it comes to being disciples or apprentices of things. With every gust of wind, they are a new disciple of, of somebody. I want bangs now. I want a messy jersey. I want a Kershaw jersey. I want a Griffin jersey. Every, I mean, all the time I'm kind of like, don't you think I'm cool? Like, don't you want to disciple me? I can dab. I'm hip. So to finish, to finish our short series on the form and function of the local church, we are clearly talking about discipleship. Now, the title of disciple um, appearing, I guess, depending on translation, but the word disciple appearing somewhere around 268 times in the New Testament alone. 
in the New Testament alone. See, way more than the title of Christian. The title of Christian is man-made, and it was given in a tone of sarcasm. That's where Christian came from. But disciple, that was given by Jesus himself. This is the inscription of those who are fully devoted followers of Christ. And so for our very small duration tonight, I just want to keep it short tonight. I want to get a bit practical in the end. But for our very short amount of time tonight, I'd like to show the radical, um, no, dare I say danger, the danger of what happens when Jesus walks onto the scene of somebody's life. See, tonight, friends, again, Luke 5. It's so epic. I mean, it's like the tornado in Wizard of Oz. It's going to rip people up out of a black and white world and place them into another. And it all starts like most great stories, and that's on the edge of a lake. So look at verse 1. Oh, I love these verses. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in, uh, in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. For the Christian here, and I guess, I guess, even for, no, I guess more so for the unchristian that is here, what does your mind's eye conjure up for the image, for the manner of this Jesus? This Jesus who just strolls up. What do we think of Jesus is? What does he look like? What does he act like? Sadly, probably many think that Jesus was this buttoned-down, homophobic, anti-fun, nosy, bearded, religious legalist. All of which are horribly wrong. See, Jesus was a friend of thieves and sinners prostitutes, criminals, and thugs. Religious people hated, hated Jesus. He was this Jewish prophet, priest, king, and rabbi. Rabbi Jesus. See, to be a rabbi means you are ordained in an experienced, dynamic teacher of the law of God. All in Christ's day were familiar with this role and respected it. So Rabbi Jesus walks up to a handful of Jewish fishermen. Like, imagine the crew of, like, Deadliest Catch. So he walks up to the crew of Deadliest Catch, and they're fishermen. And many actually believe because they're fishermen and speculate because they didn't cut the mustard to be rabbis themselves. No, they're fishermen because they're not rabbis, is what many believe. So they're rejects. They believe they're rejects. They're the breakfast club of the Jewish rabbinical system. And Jesus sits ever so confidently in one of their boats, and asks fisherman Peter, the reject, for help. Jesus asks for help. That hit me pretty hard this week. Jesus asks for help. And after a long, frustrating night of fishing, Jesus asks for them to push out a little bit from the shore, and Peter, a Jewish man who has much admiration and respect for rabbis, does exactly what he says. Now, the point of these verses are not the rabbi's sermon. We don't even have a transcript of that and what he said. So it's not the point of Christ's words in this story. It's the works of Christ that I want us to see. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. We had finished speaking. He said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets 
let down your nets for, uh, for a catch. Let down your nets for a catch. So if we were to look at the life of Jesus, if we were to stop and slow down and look at the life of Jesus, we know one thing that, that sort of stands out over the Gospels, that Jesus loves fish. Jesus loves to talk about fish. Jesus loves to eat fish. Jesus loves to make money appear in the mouth of fish. Jesus loves to multiply fish. He is a mariner at heart. But as much as Jesus loves fish, he is not a fisherman. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is not a fisherman. And for some reason, this Jesus, this inland rabbi, gives seasoned fishermen some professional advice on how to do their job. I don't know about you, but I hate this kind of crap. Does anybody else agree with me on that? Does anybody else agree when somebody has no idea what they're talking about, but decides to give you advice on your profession, on your trade, drives me bonkers because I'm very prideful and it drives me nuts. You should say this in the email. No, you should cook it this way. You should, you know, I don't, pitch it this way in the showroom. I don't know, whatever. You should drop your nets here. You should let down your nets there. And Rabbi Jesus tells them to drop their nets and breaks two well-known fishing trade rules. Breaks two of them. First, he has them do it during the day. And second, he has them do it in the deep. During the day and in the deep, which is crazy. You never drop a net when the sun is out. For one, the fish can see the net. And two, they're all hiding under rocks to get away from the sun. And then the second... See, the fish were closer to the shore where the oxygen was being turned over and over and over. They're not out in the deep. The fishermen knew this. So allow me to say it this way. What Jesus is asking for is absolutely ridiculous. It's absurd. This is the worst advice anybody could give. So let's see how the fishermen respond. Look at verse 5. And Simon answered, (laughs) Master, We toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. So when you read this, that's not that bad, right? Peter, good job, buddy. You're humble, you're submissive, you nailed it. We're excited for Peter. Well, actually, allow me to translate what Peter's response really means is told by commentators and translators. This is what he says. Listen, chief. Anybody ever call you chief like in the like an apartment store, and you're just like, what? You got it, boss. I'm not your boss. But he goes, goes, listen, chief, we're not stupid. We know how to fish. We know when the fish feed, they ain't biting. We just cleaned our nets. We're dead tired. We want coffee. But, but to just prove you wrong, you rabbi, I'm going to do this just one time. I'm going to do it one time. Friends, here right now, in my opinion, what happens next is the absolute climax of the story. Look at verse six. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. These nets are not made to break. Their nets are breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. You guys remember that scene in Finding Nemo when all the tuna started swimming down? Do you remember that? And it broke the line and the giant net. They're all swimming down. That great moment. Well, imagine that times, you know, 100 or whatever. 
Do, you, do we have any idea how hard it is to sink a boat just off of weight alone? It's almost impossible. Peter is signaling, not calling out. Peter isn't saying, I've got fish. He's saying, he's doing this. He's doing this because he knows. He doesn't want to give away the abundance of where the fish are. And see, their hearts were probably pounding. Their hearts were pounding, right? They probably couldn't stop laughing, just cracking up at one another as they're pulling this in. I, I remember, geez, before my wife and I were married, but my now brother-in-law, we were on a cruise and we were doing like penny slots on the cruise. And we were running out of pennies and we went over to the last one, we threw a penny in and he hit the jackpot. And pennies, just like in the movie, started pouring out. And all we could do was crack up. <laughs> There's just pennies all over the floor. It's nothing impressive, but we're cracking up and we're, oh my gosh. I remember he's like, I'm going to buy a car. No joke, because the red light was going nuts. And then we realized it was like 34 bucks in pennies. But the amazing emotion of just the abundance, like jackpot, you couldn't stop laughing. So there's that emotion and there's that rush. And I think Peter has that, right? We could speculate that Peter has that emotion. And then all of a sudden something happens. He catches himself. Peter catches himself in the moment and he remembers what? He remembers the rabbi. Look at verse eight in this crazy, emotional, unbelievable moment. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You were talking about these verses if you were here last week. Depart from me. All of a sudden, Peter goes from like this incredible big moment to Holy smokes, I am in the presence of God. Friends, Christians or not, this is why I describe Christ walking onto the scene of our lives as dangerous. This is why I'd say it's dangerous, this, these type of moments. If you're here and you're content, Christ walking in on your life is dangerous. If you're here and you're settled, Christ walking on in your life is dangerous. If you're here and your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your career, whatever, is your everything. Christ walking in on your life, on my life, is dangerous. This Jesus is sculpting. He's sculpting Peter from the rock. See, like staring into the sun, we see brightly, very, very brightly, that Jesus is defining these fishermen's what? All in just these small amount of verses. What is Jesus defining? The fishermen's, I don't know, authority, vocation, expectations, He's defining their purposes. He's defining their ambitions. He's carving and sculpting their priorities. You see, if your career is everything, if your children are your everything, if you're too busy, if you're too lazy, if you're too cozy, if you're too religious, Jesus will endanger all of it. All of it. And disciples of Christ actually, actually welcome it, that danger. Dallas Willard, a wonderfully brilliant theologian, uh, he makes the simple you know, slit down the middle and exposes a life-altering difference. He says believing in Christ and following Christ are two different things, or between Christian and disciple are two different things, or between convert and disciple are two different things. He basically says, so, as far, so far as the uh, visible Christian institutions of our day are concerned, discipleship, Discipleship, following Jesus, being a fully devoted follower of Christ is clearly optional. 
That's the slit down the middle he says. No, there's, there's, there's Christians and then there's disciples. When somebody says, I understand Christianity, when somebody says, I understand Jesus, when somebody says, I understand the truth and the good news of Jesus Christ, I'm not ready to put him, though, at the center of my life. I'm going to go out and say, then I would say that person doesn't understand anything. No, I get it. No. No, you don't. See, as of now, Peter is a full-fledged believer, right? He's seen the light and he believes. Look at verse 8 again. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He gets it. And you can hear the tone change, can't you? Can't you hear the tone change? What did he originally call Jesus? Chief, boss, master. What is he calling him now? Lord. Peter, he's, he's waking up. He's calling him sculptor. Peter's like, oh, sculptor, depart from me. P- Peter's saying, sculpt this rock any way you like. See, one of the greatest dangers, one of the greatest dangers facing the local church and the spiritual formation and the spiritual maturity of, I would say, all of us, all Christians, all disciples, is the compartmentalization of our faith. Rabbi Jesus does not just seek people to accept him. Rabbi Jesus does not just want people who merely believe in him, but to follow, to follow, to follow, to follow. Look at verse 9. We'll finish reading the verses. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. They're freaked out. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. See, one either follows Christ with their existence or does not follow him at all. He is either sculptor of every inch of the rock or he is not sculptor at all. See, I'm pretty sure Michelangelo with the Atlas slave would not allow somebody else to come in and carve a little bit, only let that person come in and carve a little bit. Michelangelo touched every inch of that rock. This is what it means to be a disciple. For those here who by chance have compartmentalized following Jesus to just slim attendance on Sundays or behavioral change or the bending of our wills, friends, that is like, in my opinion, you know, leaving the first inning of the Cubs winning the World Series. Like, that's what it's like. That is a small, 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 small view of what is about to go down. That is a small view of just who this Jesus is and what we're called to do, Christians. There's no such thing, there there, there can't be any such thing as he is sculptor and Lord here. But not with my lust or not with my passion. No, he is sculptor and Lord here. But no, 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 no. Not with that. Not with my relationships or my career or whatever. See, there is no realm or sphere or business or politic in which the lordship of Jesus Christ will be excluded in our lives. We either have the opportunity to make him lord of lords within our life or we deny him as lord of anything. Now, as we were like writing this out, I was like, this sounds really negative. 
<laughs> I just thought this sounded super negative. Like I just, when I was writing, I was like, this is jarring. This is unflattering. If there's anybody here who's not a Christian, they're thinking, this Christianity sounds gross. And so all I could think about is, I want us to see a very special uh, revelation or moment within these verses. And I want Fisherman Peter to unwrap this idea, this gorgeous, beautiful idea of what it means to be a fully devoted, or devoted, uh, devoted follower of Jesus. Excuse me. So when Rabbi Jesus calls disciples unto himself, and just know that wasn't the norm in the day. Anybody know that? That wasn't the norm. Students would ask the, disciple, or ask the rabbi, can I follow you, can I follow you? But here, rarely did any rabbis do this, but Jesus asked them. But you can basically boil down this moment with Peter and what Jesus is doing. He's basically saying, do you want to make something of your life? Do you want to make something of your life? This is why following Jesus isn't some limp, religious lifestyle. Yuck. Too many people see the following of Jesus. It's about what we have to give up. It's about what we have to give. Christianity is just giving everything up. But we might be blind or forgetful to the actual gain. Do we even get what Peter denied here in the moment on the shore? This is huge. I want us to get this. It's two heavy, sinking boats loaded with fish. Now, maybe you're thinking, yeah, I'd give that up too. <laughs> fish. I don't know. But we have to get out of, our, again, out of our Los Angeles mindset for a moment. Let me just say it this way. It's two heavy, sinking boats loaded with a fortune. A fortune. Whatever it is you want most in the world, whatever it is you want most right now, Write it down in your little journal or write it next to your little column in your Bible. You can draw in your Bible. It's all right. And then draw a little boat underneath it. That's the equivalent of what is, is in those sinking boats for Peter. See, this is so true for those around us who reject Jesus. Many of, the, many of my conversations with those who don't follow Jesus, this is what offends them. This idea of, of giving up, but most don't even have an idea about what's in the boat. What they're most fearful about is giving up. When you say what they're most fearful about or what you might be most fearful about or what I was most fearful about years ago before I accepted Christ was just giving up the sculpting tools. There's nothing I was holding on to. It was just giving up the sculpting tools, the possibilities, the unknown. So we don't know what Peter... We don't know if Peter in this moment, as he's holding like these thick, wet ropes overflowing with like sardine and carp, you know, had some conflict of the heart. We have no idea. Fortune, fame, reputation with all these fish. This crazy rabbi standing on the beach shore who's friends of sinners and prostitutes, thugs and criminals. See, if we look at the immediacy and urgency of Peter's departure, we can clearly see that what he left behind is, in that moment, like buffalo nickels or, or, or monopoly money. That's all monopoly money to the glory and worth of following Jesus. Fame and fortune for a fisherman in this boat, and he left everything. I love the way preacher Charles Spurgeon says it. He sort of wraps this up and puts a bow on it. Get this. Nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. 
I long for all here in this room, including me, believe it or not, to see that 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 same Jesus who bids us to cast and let our nets down is the same Jesus who fills them up. I implore all here to know and remember Christ's words, for what does it profit a man to gain the entire whole world and forfeit his own soul in the process? What does it gain you to take those boats ashore and throw them in the bank and the storehouse but in the process, lose your soul. Jesus is saying, instead of trying you know, to gain a self or a purpose or a life by making yourself out of the rock, I'll build your life. Jesus is saying, I'll build your life on who I am and what I have done on the rock that is higher than high. I will build you a stable life. I'll build you an incorruptible life. It's crazy. When we, who's gone here fishing before? Who's gone fishing? Everybody? Yeah. For the most part, for the most part, uh, what do you do with the fish? You bring them in and they die, right? Right? That's what happens. We, 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 we reel them in and we, we eat them or do whatever. But this wording here is very different. As Jesus is talking to Peter, he's talking about, you're going to reel these fish in. And it's talking about taking them alive. See, Jesus brings in. It's very catch and release. It releases for his own purposes, but it talks about taking people alive. Like, I'm going to give these fish the greatest life they could ever imagine. He goes, I want to make you fisher of men so that other men and women may have life. Jesus gives us exactly what we need. He will love the real you as he has loved the real me. I wonder if someone of us even know who the real us are. He will love us and he'll shape us and he'll give us a whole new identity, a new inner reality, and make us a new creation. To me, to me, that's worth more than worldly gain. And he doesn't just do this. Again, he doesn't just call Peter. Follow me. He doesn't call Peter or call anybody to like an isolated faith, right? But when the words follow me or cried out, it's to follow closely to the rabbi in relationships and on a, in, a, in a role. There's a rabbi, there's a relationships, and we are given a role. To follow Jesus is the calling to himself and to one another and to his plans and purposes to make disciples, to catch fish. These are the elements of what makes disciples in a local church. You see, it's more of a life course rather than a, I don't know, a crisis or a conversion. It's a life course. It's a life sculpting. Disciples of Jesus are repurposed in order to make disciples. Look at verse 10 again. Do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. Jesus takes their entire identity as fishermen and redefines it and repurposes it. See, disciples here tonight reading this, my question for you would be, have we, have you seriously considered that God maybe gave you your skill, medicine, teaching, business, art, influence, whatever, not just as a tool for making money, but as a platform. Have we thought about these things as a platform for spreading the gospel in order to make disciples of Jesus Christ? This is how it played out for the fishermen who now catch men and women. And then the same is true for any single disciple of Jesus in this room. Jesus, as our, our, our master and we as apprentice, redefines and redefines and redefines 
every inch of the marble. I want us to think that when Jesus says, follow me and make films as a gospel platform to make disciples, follow me and, I don't know, be a lawyer as a gospel disciple platform, follow me and be a stay-at-home mom as a gospel platform. As a collective church, this, I want everybody to know, this is the criteria upon which we measure success. This. This, 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 this. It's not a huge budget. We could have $18 million in the bank, or I don't know, what's a bigger number? You know, Duran, I don't know big numbers. Something, $19 million. Thank you. <laughs> See, it's not about a bigger budget, and I don't care if there's 19 million people in this room. I don't care. We, what we... What we measure success is how many of us are actively making disciples and participating in sharpening and stirring up one another to know and to live and to love Jesus more. This is why we stress discipleship. I hope you guys know this is why we stress discipleship as hard as we can and we will forever. Again, I've said this a lot over our church series. If we stop stressing discipleship, if we're like, guys, stop making disciples, we're good. If we ever stop that, please stand up from your seats and leave. We've lost our minds. We've lost our, our minds. Because this is the entire, this is our entire purpose, is to make disciples. For us not to do this would be as crazy as McDonald's to stop selling burgers. God forbid that ever happened. I love McDonald's. But... What we want, that's how crazy it is, right? McDonald's stops selling burgers tomorrow. All of us would be like, what? If we as a church stop making disciples tomorrow, we should all be like, what? Christians, if you're here and you think of this as your church community and you're not taking the responsibility for your own discipleship efforts, both to make disciples but also maturing oneself, then I just want us to slow down and think, okay, then... um, Who's sculpting us? Who is shaping our lives? Dare I say, and I say it gently, but maybe we'll continue on being rough and jagged and enclosed. See, everything I'm saying is to be the normative way for life for us as disciples. See, our approach here is that the collective community takes charge of their own discipleship. Nick, as much as I want you to be discipled, I can't, I, I can't make you, Right? Our approach to discipleship is a one-another approach. I wish, you guys should pray for this. I wish we had a bunch of people in here who are older than like 60 for every single one of you to be like your new dads and moms. I wish we had that. I wish I had an older person in here for me who could just wrap his arms around me and say, everything's all right. I want that too. So we have a one-another approach. If you guys want to pray for older people in our church, that'd be epic. We want them. We want that. Older, mature, seasoned Christians. We'd love that. But we have a one-another approach to discipleship here. It's self-propagating, it's self-paced, it's self-driven. Now, it may take a little longer, as some of you guys may have figured out, but that the long-term benefit is far worth it. See, what we've learned out of discipleship efforts is lumping you guys together, lumping us together, does not work. That's like arranging marriages right now. It does not work. Because they're relationally formed, that means there's no designated leader in any of our discipleship groups. Not a single designated leader. So if someone tries in your discipleship group here through Collective Church, step up and become like a leader, straight up revolt. That is not what happens here. Because we believe in a communal effort in discipling one another. 
I'm in a discipleship group with Joel and with Kevin, both of these guys back here. Am I the leader of the group? No, we all are doing this. They're both nodding their head yes. You guys are liars. <laughs> discipleship takes place, again, we believe it's a communal effort. Kevin leads the charge, Joel leads the charge, whatever. It's a communal effort. Discipleship takes place only in community. If anybody here is a follower of Jesus and go, I'm going to do this on my own hermit style, total hermit style, you and I, whoever does that, will never grow, ever grow that way. Discipleship takes place in community. Jesus called to himself 12 disciples. Jesus wasn't lonesome. He wasn't a lone ranger. He wasn't Batman. He's more of the Justice League. That worked. That analogy's good. That worked. And that community is to be filled. Our communities we have, our discipleship groups, are to be filled with introverts and extroverts, young and old, married and single, all here to disciple and be discipled. See, we believe all we need is one another because Christians here, you have the, pers- or the power and presence of, the, of God and the Holy Spirit, and we use the authority of the Bible. This is the practical stuff I was talking about. We are a church that believes in the absolute authority of the Bible. That is why it is the centerpiece of our discipleship groups. For some of the discipleship groups right now, if you guys want to go through, like, let's read East of Eden. Cool, you're probably no longer a discipleship group, part of collective church. The centerpiece of what we do is scripture. It is God's authoritative word. And we engage it in three contexts. So we have something for you. I want you to see this graphic. Bryce, don't be mad at me. I had to change the middle part. Bryce designed this for us. I had to change the middle part. So there's been a lot of, a lot of confusion about our three-pronged approach. Guess what, y'all? I'm going to clean it up right now. You ready for this? But this is our three-pronged approach to how we center our lives around Scripture and grow in the likeness of Jesus because that's what happens with one another while the Scriptures are you know, the authoritative um, direction and driven you know, efforts for us. Bible reading plan. We put this out on the website and social media every week. Then we go to Sunday talk, this, and then your discipleship group. Many people believe it's, well, I'm, I'm going to show up on Sunday, hear it, and then we're going to analyze and critique Casey at our discipleship group. <laughs> nah, y'all. <laughs> Don't even talk about me. Don't talk about a thing I said. Here's how it works. The week before, we want you guys reading scripture yourself and allowing the spirit of God to influence you so that your mind is not just filled with a bunch of mumbo-jumbo that Casey may have said. Okay, does that make sense? So you read it as we post it, you read it, and then you hear a preacher or a pastor on Sunday talk about it, who hopefully knocks out any heresy or crazy anything, gives some direction in one very specific direction. You guys may have something, a million other opinions, but I give one specific direction. And then that week at Discipleship Group, guess what happens? You discuss what God has been informing your heart through your reading, and through the Sunday talk. And then you guys in those discipleship groups, you guys like own up to one another. You guys are actually there for one another. You guys are actually pushing one another, pushing one another, pushing one another, stirring, sharpening one another. Let me just, I just want to say this, like if there's somebody in your group who's just messing around or has not caring or is putting in like 2% or whatever it could possibly be, charge them, charge them, charge them. Come on. You're, this is not just about you and how much you don't or do want to do. This is also about me and my growth in this process. I'm totally off my notes. I don't even know where I'm at right now. We want everybody to see this. You read, 
You hear it, you discuss it, but then we go and live it. I'm a part of this. I encourage you guys to be a part of this. This was after we showed it to a million churches. Pastor Lorenzo and I prayed over this, trying to figure out what would work. And again, it's nothing amazing, but we believe fruit will come from it. We believe fruit will come from it. So when we are committed to one another, we are committed to one another and we elevate the Bible to where it should be, iron will be sharpened and transformation will take place. Is it going to happen overnight? Nope. Not even close. It is a lifetime of sculpting that Jesus will use us in his word. Have you guys ever seen or been around when like, you know, the Bible verse iron sharpens iron? Have you ever seen iron be sharpened? Has anybody ever actually seen it? Everybody thinks it's this smooth this is just smooth red. This is nice. No. It's a slashing, fire, hammer, pounding, smashing process. Iron sharpening iron is far from pleasant, but we're sharpened by sparks happening within our life. That means our immaturity, lack, and sin is most often revealed as we interact with the other people of God. So we need to be prepared for sparks. And friends, basically, that's discipleship. That spark stuff is discipleship. It's so crazy. You know, I don't know if this is true for everybody, but I've had many conversations over the years where it's like, yes, accountability. And then somebody tells accountable to something, you're like, oh. Yes, I want to be discipled. And somebody's like, cool, you should repent about this. This, is, this, is, this isn't good. Oh, no. <laughs> discipleship with one another in a local church community is intrusive, disruptive, uncomfortable, inconvenient, and at times frustrating to our flesh. Frustrating to our flesh. And I'd go on a limb to say that if that doesn't, our discipleship doesn't have those elements to it, perhaps we're doing something wrong. It really is that intrusive. See, if you're in a current discipleship group again, which barely meets, nobody's putting in the hard work, nobody's taking it seriously, um, I will say this. Get out of it. Part of our own discipleship groups here, nobody's putting in the work. Again, they barely meet. Nobody seems to be into it. I either charge them, let's get serious, let's recommit to one another, or get out of it and get into another discipleship group. Friends, if I could end this talk in any way, which I'll be doing in just like 60 seconds, if I could do anything and, and charge a bunch of people I love dearly and f- consider friends, I would... Uh, beg you, do not settle in your journey with Christ, in your following Jesus. You know, we settle for crappy seats at a sporting event. We settle and compromise, you know, an overdone steak or whatever it is. But we are to never settle and compromise for God's mission and our commission. I want to read this quote, and as I'm doing it, the band's going to come back up. But I want to read this quote, and this quote is from Spurgeon again. And it's his attempt to get us to not be okay. You hear me? His attempt to get us to not be okay. It's very convicting for me. This is what Spurgeon says. It is true that a fisherman uh, may not catch fish, but no true fisherman is okay with that. If I weren't bringing souls to Jesus, I'd cry out night after night after night after night after night. I think sometimes we, we might, we might, and I've done this many times, Hide under the blanket of faithfulness. Hide under the blanket of faithfulness. I just got to keep being faithful and just be present and just be out there. We might hide under the blanket of faithfulness. What Spurgeon, preacher, mega man Spurgeon is saying is, 
yeah, I'm still going to be faithful, but I'm not okay with a lack. I'm going to cry out after night. See, if we aren't making disciples, if we aren't following Jesus to the lengths of multiplication, if we aren't living out the great commission, we should cry out night after night after night after night. Friends, this is God's plan A. Disciples making disciples, us making disciples is God's plan A. God's plan A. There's no plan B. Some of us can't be like, disciples making disciples, nah, what else? There is nothing else. There is nothing else. This is it. I want to be a church community so burdened for what burdens Christ that we cry out night after night after night. May we never settle compromise the Great Commission from Christ himself. Allow me to read it. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So in just a few moments, we're going to, we're going to wrap this up. And there's going to be people on that wall, and there's going to be people on that wall who want to pray for you. They're here, their entire ministry here, and their entire service here is to pray for this group of people right now. That's their entire existence here. So they're going to pray for you. Now, would you please, I encourage you, if there's anything weighing you down, would you please, please, please allow us to pray over you and intercede for your life. This is what the Bible calls us to do for one another. We're a church that prays, and some of you have been with us a long time. Let's perpetuate that understanding and conviction that we need one another in discipleship and in community and prayer. So they're going to be against the back wall. And lastly, before we worship and respond, I just want to tell a small, small story. Bear with me. It's a small story. And it's probably my favorite story in all of the Bible. See, after Jesus' death and after his resurrection, do you guys know what the disciples did? You guys have any idea? They went back to fishing. Three years came and went. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. They went back to fishing. Not fishing for men. They went back to regular stinky fish fishing. Basically, in my opinion, they settled. They compromised. They went back to their old life as if nothing ever happened. That is not what Jesus has called them to do. So in this narrative, in this narrative, Jesus shows up at the edge of the sea and he sees them fishing, the disciples. He sees the disciples out there and he cries out, is anything biting? And they look back at the silhouette and they, he cries out, you know, the, the disciples cry out, no, nothing's bitten, we've got nothing. And this lone silhouette cries back to the boat, cast your net on the other side. And then the boat began to sink. They cast their net and the boat began to sink with this abundance of fish. And then in the flash of a moment and in a memory and just a spark, the disciples look at the silhouette on the man on the beach shore. You know what they cried out? It's the Lord. They cried out, it's the Lord. So you know what they do? Peter, many believe theologians, he jumps in buck naked and he jumps in the sea and he swims as fast as he can to the shore. He just wants to be around Jesus. And as they swim to the shore, they see Jesus there, but not just Jesus by himself. Jesus cooked them breakfast. Oh my gosh. How good was that food, you think? 
There's just bread and there's fish. See, Jesus loves fish for breakfast. <laughs> Tonight, a different feast is awaiting you, Christians. When Jesus passed out the food on the shore, this is so crazy. He's passing out the food to those disciples who were once fishers of men who have now gone back and settled. He passed out the food. You know what he asks them? You know what he asks Peter? He goes, do you love me? Do you love me? Yeah. Do you love me? Tonight, communion is for those who can answer that question with their words and with their works. So when you come and you take these cups, these double cups, they're double stacked here, my right and on my left, I want us to almost have that moment where we're sitting there on the beach and Jesus is saying, do you love me? How do we respond? Yes, I show it here, I show it there. See, communion is about centering in on the elements of the lengths that we will go to follow Christ. And what's beautiful, when I'm going to challenge everybody, everybody here tonight, either a re-challenge or challenge for the first time if you do not know Jesus. But when they were done with the fish and the bread, Jesus looked up in John chapter 1, verse 19. You know what he ended with? You know what he said? Follow me. He said, follow me. Tonight, examine again for the first time, or re-examine, you're following, you're discipling, and you're apprentice of Jesus Christ. Sound good? Well, let me pray for us.